0: and welcome to the Modern Cotton Story, sponsored by E3 Sustainable Cotton. I'm Jennifer Crumpler, fiber development manager and manager of the E3 Sustainable Cotton program from BASF, and I'll be host of today's program. I'm also joined today by industry consultant Bob Anishak. So, Bob, how's everything happening in Tennessee today?
1: Tennessee is icy today, (laughs) Jennifer. (laughs) Oh, Oh, yeah, it's uh, cold cold and completely. That's my... Weekly, uh, weather update.
0: weather. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well here in, um, uh, North Carolina, it has been cold. And, um, luckily on this Friday, we have got some warm weather that has come through and pockets of sunshine. So I am ready to get outside and enjoy some of that, um, this afternoon.
1: <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Yeah, it's great.
0: Well, awesome. Well, um, I'm excited, and it's an honor for me to introduce today's guest, Bill Jackson. He's Assistant U.S. Trade Representative for Textiles. So, Bill, thanks so much um, for being on today and taking time out of your busy schedule to join us.
2: I'm happy to do it.
0: Well, wonderful. Well, Bill, I know you've had an extensive career in Washington, D.C., having worked in government policy for many years. Um, And I think that, um, some of our best guests on the podcast, we've had some great ones, but I hear a lot of feedback from those who have been working in government policy for years. Every time, you know, we have those guys come on and talk. I love to get the feedback from the listeners. So I know everyone's really excited about hearing, um, everything that's happening and that you guys are working on, but you know, with that, I know you're not only an expert, um, for textile and, on textile and apparel trade policy, but you've had experience as, um, Foreign Service Officer at the State Department. You've worked at some NGOs, and today you manage the textile office at USTR in Washington. Um, But before we kind of get in and we have you update us on the latest from Washington and all the world of textile, would love to know um, if you would take some time and maybe just talk a little bit about your background so our listeners can learn a little bit more about you.
2: All right. Well, well, thanks for that, Jennifer. Um, I I think I should say just at the outset that um, being a creature of Washington, I never take for granted that folks understand what I do, where I sit, what the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative is. We know we go by the acronym USTR, and I, I know that a lot of people get confused sometimes by the alphabet soup coming out of Washington. Um, <laughs> but um, we are a small agency, we're part of the Executive Office of the President. And we are responsible for developing and implementing international trade policy. Uh, We work very closely with other executive branch agencies like the Department of Commerce, the Department of State, et cetera. Um, We uh, also lead all trade and investment negotiations internationally. Uh, The US Trade Representative, Ambassador Catherine Tai, is a member of the President's Cabinet and his chief advisor on all trade and investment matters. Um, And as you mentioned, I I lead the textiles office at USPR. Um, We are responsible for all aspects of trade policy affecting textiles and apparel. And we also work closely with with other agencies, especially Commerce and CBP. And, uh, you know, I I lead the negotiations on, I've led the negotiations on our most recent trade uh, agreements. For example, USMCA, uh, the successor to NAFTA. But uh, me personally, I've I've been at USPR since two thousand two. Uh, I've been the assistant trade representative for textiles since two thousand sixteen, um, and previously I oversaw the uh, two preference programs: the Generalized System of Preferences (GSP) and the African Growth and Opportunity Act (AGOA). Um, so uh, before USTR, as as you mentioned, I, I spent more than a decade working as a foreign service officer for the Department of State. And I served in the Caribbean and Africa and Asia. Uh, well, now,
0: that, now the Caribbean, now that's pretty um difficult assignment right there, isn't it?
2: Well, I uh, you know, I I, I don't want to make you too jealous, but I was 24 years old. I was in Barbados. Oh, okay.
1: oh, there,
0: you go. there so, you go. You know, Bill. Um, I don't. I don't know if you've heard um, or listened, but I, my husband and I have a sailboat, and normally in the winter we spend our winter in the Caribbean, um, in the U.S. Virgin Islands and British Virgin Islands for about six months. And so we're in the middle of building a house right now, so we're slam locked. Um, so I fully appreciate the work that you. Were ne- that needed to be done down there at that time. And I'm definitely looking for my opportunity to make, because I really feel like there's some cotton growing down there um, that I need to go take care of. <laughs>
2: that's, that's, that's me. Um, anyway.
1: Bill, you, uh, you, uh, uh, where did you uh, go to school? If you don't mind uh, me asking. I
2: went undergraduate to the University of Pittsburgh and uh, graduate school at Georgetown.
1: Oh, fabulous. So that's what that's what I brought you to see was Georgetown.
2: Yeah. I, I I knew that I wanted to go into international affairs and Georgetown um has a specialty in that area through the School of Foreign Service.
1: Oh, so that's how you got you got started. That's cool. Um let me ask you about USMCA. Uh how's it going with it? Do you see it as being uh better than uh, NAFTA was?
2: Yeah, I, I think USMCA is is definitely an improvement on NAFTA. Um, it was uh, based on very intensive negotiations. Uh, we brought in a broad range of stakeholders, um, and ultimately, it, it won uh, bipartisan support for passage. So that's that's uh, sometimes rare for a for a free trade agreement.
1: I'll say, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what what are some of the highlights of the USMCA let you? feel best about
2: well you know i may be a little biased since i negotiated these provisions with my canadian and mexican counterparts but um i would say that we achieved our objective which was increasing the north american value added in products that are traded under the agreement um so you know many of of the provisions of nafta were unchanged in usmca but we updated and we upgraded some of those provisions and we introduced a few new elements so for example, um, uh, you know, I, I think that most of your listeners are, are generally familiar with the yarn forward approach to um, free trade agreements, which basically means that with certain exceptions, most finished textile and apparel products that, are, uh, that qualify for duty-free treatment under the agreement, they have to be made in the region from the formation of the yarn forward. Um, and, you know, and that we think that that's a very important uh, approach to the rules of origin because it ensures that most of the benefits of the agreement uh, stay in the region, uh, that you don't have any free riders. So when we considered what we could do to improve on NAFTA under the USMCA, we, what we <clears throat> chose to do was to close some of the exceptions to yarn forward so that even more of the value of the products uh, traded under the agreement would originate in North America. Um, And we did this in two ways. Uh, We introduced uh, some new chapter rules, um, which basically require that inputs such as sewing thread, pocketing bags, and narrow elastic bands, as well as uh, uh, many kinds of coated fabric, that they must be made in the region, uh, those inputs into um, final finished goods. And we also um, restructured and rebalanced the rules governing, governing um, tariff preference levels, uh, TPLs as they're sometimes called. So what they do is they're, they're basically quantitative uh, allowances uh, for uh, a limited amount of duty-free treatment of products that are made of third country inputs. So it's a flexibility um, that's been uh, in NAFTA and now under USMCA and, and we restructured those, those rules a bit. And we think that ultimately what this did is it strengthened the supply chain for textiles um, in the region and opened up some new market opportunities for the U.S. textile and apparel sector. Um, I guess just two other things I would mention is that uh, what we did in USMCA is we also strengthened um, customs enforcement to circumvent or to prevent circumvention and and fraud. And we also um, added, what we actually excluded uniforms by TSA, the Transportation Security Administration from our government procurement obligations. Um, What that means is that uh, TSA uniforms now have to be made in the US of US inputs, very similar to the Berry Amendment that many of your listeners are are familiar with, which is a requirement Mm -hmm. for um, uh, procurement from the Department of Defense. So all in all, we think that it's that this was an improvement for, for our stakeholders um, in textiles and apparel.
1: Can you talk a little bit about uh, Yarn Forward and CAFTA and how that maybe plays into uh, it, it issues regarding investment in the region down there and migration um, that I know has been kind of front and center in the papers these days? Right, uh, thanks.
2: Thanks, Bob. That, there's been a lot of attention uh, lately on Central America and, and CAFTA um, because, as you mentioned, it's, there's been a surge in um, you know, migration, irregular migration to the U.S. from, from the CAFTA region, especially from what we call the Northern Triangle countries of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Um, and, um, you know, one of uh, the, the, the administration uh, has undertaken a a strategy for addressing the root causes of migration um, from Central America. And that's led by Vice President Harris. And one of the pillars of that strategy is addressing economic insecurity and inequality. And clearly, the the textile and apparel industry in in the Central American region, which is already one of the very biggest employers in that region, there's a lot of potential um, in the industry to to drive new uh, uh, economic growth and create new jobs um, especially for for women um, and underserved populations um, in, in in that region so we believe that that um, the CAFTA uh, agreement already provides um, via the yarn forward rules that are in it the foundation upon which the industry can grow and um, you know, the uh, I, I would also mention that Yarn Forward, of course, has uh, particular interest to those who follow this podcast is, is also very supportive of jobs in the US, especially those who grow and process cotton. So some folks, of course, have, have advocated that we change the rules in, in CAFTA to, to allow goods to be made of yarns and fabrics from, from, from Asia or elsewhere um we don't think that's a great idea and we're not looking to change that right now there are already many flexibilities in the cafta agreement um there's what we call cut and sew rules for some products there's a short supply mechanism there's uh, accumulation with mexico for woven fabrics um so we don't think that changing the rules is the answer to to building a, a, a stronger uh industry in the region What we think um, right now is that, uh, the region needs greater investments in textile, uh, in the textile sector. And that would be both, um, in the inputs, um, as well as, uh, commitments from the buyers and the retailers to purchase more from the region. And we're already seeing some of that. Um, uh, Parkdale Mills, of course, the biggest, uh, uh cotton yarn producer in the U S, um, has announced a, a big investment in Honduras and, a uh, uh a corresponding investment in their um, mill in Virginia um, for new cotton yarn spinning, and it's the first of what we hope will be a, a series of new investments in the region that will um, help to create new jobs and and to strengthen the industry. Yeah,
0: and um, you know, thanks for that, Bill, and you know kind of a follow-up a lot of those who are on listeners for the podcast they really are interested in what's happening in the cotton business and you know trade and how that affects you know everybody in cotton from our farmers all the way through um and so I'd really just for you know their benefit love to know you know with the current administration and their policy towards um Xinjiang cotton from China you know what does that look like and do you see um how do you see that legislation passed by Congress regarding forced labor and from this province affects textile and apparel companies sourcing products made um, with cotton from that region? And, you know, do you see traceability, transparency, you know, being pushed even more, uh, more by this um, current administration to help with some of this?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um so, I, I think at the outset, you, we just need to acknowledge that what's going on in the Xinjiang region of China is terrible. Um, there's ample evidence that the Chinese government is responsible for, for some very serious human rights violations there, including the use of forced labor. Um, and your listeners probably know that uh, Xinjiang is where most Chinese cotton is grown. I think something like 80% of, of Chinese cotton is grown mm-hmm. there. Um, so the, this administration has take some, taken some pretty strong measures to respond to that, um, building on the earlier withhold release orders that um, CBP had, had put out uh, against cotton uh, and some other products from, from Xinjiang. And as you mentioned, there's the, the president signed into law uh, a, a, new, uh, a, a new act, the, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, um, which steps up the requirements related to uh, certifying that goods coming from, or any imported goods, frankly, um, importers are required uh, to demonstrate that they are not made of any cotton fibers that come from Xinjiang, uh, anything that's made with forced labor. And you know, that doesn't apply just to imports from China. Um, Mm -hmm. China is the world's leading exporter of cotton um, uh, inputs, yarn and fabrics, to much of Asia. So if if producers in say Bangladesh or Vietnam or Cambodia are using cotton fibers from Xinjiang, then they are also subject to these withhold release orders. But you asked about transparency, traceability. Obviously, this is something that uh, uh, is uh, the brands and retailers, are already paying um, extra special attention to, because they have to. They have to be able to demonstrate that their their products are not sourced with uh, forced labor from Xinjiang.
1: Yeah, that's really, that's really a big deal. Um, thanks for explaining that, Bill. Um, can we switch a little bit and talk about supply chains? Um, the supply chains have been, uh, to put it mildly, kind of knotted up <laughs> over the last year or so, and there's been a lot of a lot of economic pain, I think, caused throughout the uh, the entire industry. Um, I'd be interested to understand your perspective on that and what's the administration's policy uh, in terms of uh, dealing with problems at the ports and the supply chain issues in general.
2: Yeah, thanks, Bob. I think that there's there's a couple aspects to, to that question. There is the, the port and logistics uh, problem, which, Obviously, has supply chain implications, um, and then there's uh, supply chain issues related to particular products, uh, especially critical goods such as PPE. And you know, on the first part of that, um, I would say that the problems that we're seeing at the ports and in transporting goods uh, across the U.S. They're related more to uh, the global recovery from from COVID, uh, volatility of demand, um, issues with trucking and labor shortages, and not so much the trade policy, which is what we're charged with doing at USTR. But I do know that the administration has taken several actions um, on this. The president had set up a supply chain uh, disruption task force that's led by secretaries of transportation, commerce, and agriculture. Um, He's met with the port directors, labor unions, and U.S. companies uh, to to try to grapple with this issue and has uh, undertaken a number of of measures, including expanding the operations at the ports. And, you know, I'm hopeful that over the longer term, the the infrastructure bill will have an impact, too. Um, uh, In mid-January, the administration announced that um, the Army Corps of Engineers is committing $4 billion to uh, expand capacity at ports. Um, now, obviously, these, these port issues are going to take some time to address, but I, I think that the administration is uh, doing its best to work with all the different stakeholders to, to try to uh, tackle that. Um, you know, and then separately, there's, there's issues related to product-specific supply chains. Um, and, you know, when the president came in, one of his very first actions in January of last year was to set up, uh, he signed a couple of executive orders that directed a whole of government approach to uh, take a look at vulnerabilities um, in our supply chain with uh, a wide range of products, but it's including the the public health supply chain that uh, is related to the COVID response. Um, You know, I I think maybe uh, we're all familiar now with how we were caught with our pants down um, at the beginning of the pandemic, that you know we did not have the PPE supplies here that we needed. And I don't think we ever want to be caught in that situation again. Um, so part of the answer to that is uh, the federal government stepping up its purchases of PPE, American-made PPE. And um, in November, the, as part of the infrastructure bill, the president signed into law the Make PPE in America Act, which requires uh, the departments of Health and Human Services, Homeland Security, and the Veterans Administration to purchase U.S.-made PPE under long-term contracts. Um, that that uh, actually kicks into effect uh, with procurement solicitations beginning, I think, next week. Um, so mm-hmm. it's it's hard to predict what's what's going to happen, but I I I do believe that. Uh, we are in a stronger position now than we were a few years ago when this pandemic
0: started. Yeah. So as we um, just kind of switching gears, I guess a little bit, because we've talked about what's happening, but, you know, you mentioned mentioned part of your responsibility is helping with um, textile trade policy. And, you know, as you're thinking about the future bill, you know, I'd love to know what do you see is um, some of the major challenges facing the industry going forward and, You know, a lot of the, we hear the word sustainability thrown around a lot and part of our E3 sustainable cotton program is 100% providing, you know, traceable cotton back to every individual field that farmers grow it, as well as nine different or eight different sustainability um, environmental measures that surround that cotton. So we'd just love to see, you know, how you think sustainability plays into those trade policies, um, you know, currently and maybe in the future.
2: Yeah, thanks for that, that question. You know, as part of my responsibilities, um, I, I have always found it very important to, to go out and actually visit the factories in the US whose interests um, I'm trying to take to heart. And so over the last few years, I've visited um, factories and, and headquarter offices in at least 14 states. And I'll say that in just about every place that I've gone when I ask what is the biggest issue that folks face? And this predates the current pandemic issues. Um, it's labor. Uh, it's recruiting and retaining skilled workers um, in their factories. And that's only become more acute as a result of the COVID pandemic. Um, but you know, there's a lot of reasons for that, no easy solutions. Um, I think a lot of it, um, uh, requires uh, some rethinking about the way we do education in this country, especially uh, tertiary education and um, vocational training, and it's something that governments at all levels need to address. Um, so that's uh, that's number one in, in my mind. Uh, you asked about sustainability, um, and it, it's it's become a, a little bit of a buzzword, I think, but I do believe that uh, it's something that every Um, stakeholder firm, whether it be from the, those who grow and process the cotton all the way through to those who put the products on the shelves in, in us, uh, stores that they're trying to take into account. And it's a, a lot of it has to do with traceability, making sure that, you know, where that cotton has come from. I think there've been some great strides on that technologically. Um, with DNA, DNA analysis and, and um, otherwise. Uh, and, and sustainability also relates to um, ensuring that, that uh, your workers are well looked after, especially in some of um, the factories overseas that uh, provide goods for the U.S. market. Um, so the administration's worker-centered uh, approach to trade policy is meant to address that to make sure that the, the interests of workers are taken um, into consideration and given a prominence when we consider the, the implications of our trade policy.
1: One last question, Bill. Uh, what's your take on nearshoring and reshoring? Is it real?
2: Uh,
1: I think it is. You know, there's, there's a,
2: um, a number of reasons why people have been looking at, at, at the reshoring and nearshoring lately. And uh, the supply chain issues that we just talked about is one big reason for that. Um, it's it's much more difficult when you're looking at these geographically extended supply chains to, to get the things that that you need, um, and so I think that that has has uh, been an impetus for a lot of the, the brands and retailers to take a look at at uh, sourcing their products closer to home. Um, you know, obviously there have been the concerns that we've already discussed with respect to uh, uh, cotton from from Xinjiang, um, and you know, I don't know that a lot of the the apparel production is going to be reshored. Uh, the cost factors that go into that, especially with respect to uh, wages, um, make the U.S. not as competitive for some of the price competitive products. Now, I, that's not to say that there aren't a lot of U.S. producers who do very well. You know, I think of American Giant, um, uh, for example, and and several others who are, who are doing a great job on that, but. I think that some of the best opportunities for reshoring are probably in the uh, inputs in, into the fibers, yarns, and fabrics um, where we're more competitive. And in terms of nearshoring, I, I think that uh, both the CAFTA DR countries and Mexico uh, provide some great opportunities, especially because most of the production in those countries that come to the U.S. is made of U.S. inputs. So that's a win-win all the way around.
0: Yeah, well, we um, I think we are about out of time, Bill, and I know I probably have um, a dozen more questions I could ask you, and I'm sure Bob, too, but again, we appreciate so much um, you taking the time and being on the podcast today, and um, if any of our listeners should like to know what your office is doing and some of the um, policies and different things that you and your team's working on, what is the best way for them to do that, Bill?
2: Well, they can take a look at our website, which is um, uspr.gov. Um, or if people have any particular questions about any of these issues, they can certainly email me, uh, wjackson at uspr.eop.gov. Happy to, to uh, listen to concerns from anyone.
0: Well, wonderful. Well, again, thank you so much for being on and Bob as well. And I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for joining us and spending time with us. And hope that you enjoyed our show. Should you have any questions about the E3 Sustainable Cotton Program from BASF, please email me at E3Cotton at BASF.com. Also, don't forget to visit and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at E3 Sustainable Cotton. Thanks so much and see you next time.